Mandy Yakich from Creative Matters, and you're listening to Creative Matters On Air, where I have conversations with new and established artists from around New Zealand. I love to listen to artists' stories and learn about their creative process, and maybe you do too, which is why I've made this podcast, to inspire, inform and educate. I hope you can take away something positive and encouraging from each of these amazing stories to help you on your own creative journey. Hi, and welcome to Creative Matters On Air. Thank you so much for listening. To help other people find us, I'd be very grateful if you could subscribe to or follow my podcast on your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when a new episode is released and if you don't mind giving it a rating, that would also be much appreciated. This is Creative Matters episode 23, and today I'm talking to Judith Dara. Judy is a highly respected New Zealand artist, renowned for her brightly coloured sculptural assemblages of recycled items, industrial materials and found objects, as well as video, collage, photography and poster art. Judy has exhibited widely since the 1980s and is well known for her her ambitious works which alter public spaces and challenge the act of conspicuous consumerism. Her works are held in numerous public and private collections and in 2004 the Museum of New Zealand Te Papa featured a major retrospective of her work entitled Judy Dara, So You Made It. Judy works and lives in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, where she has played a significant role in the development of a number of artist-run spaces and has acted as mentor for a wide range of artists. She is also co-publisher of Femisphere, a long-term project interested in encouraging inclusivity and visibility of women's practices in the visual arts sector of Aotearoa. You can see her work on her blog post, which is on our website, creativematters.co.nz. All right, welcome to Creative Matters on air, Judy. It's so good to see you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. And um, we do go a a wee way back, don't we? We met at Grayland School when our children were both there in the junior school. And um, we have a few mutual friends and we've had the odd dinner date, haven't we? Yes, we used to do the Grayland ladies. Mums would go out for dinner, and yes, I think there were lots of conversations at the school gate, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good to see you again. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get started uh, right from the beginning, Judy. Where were you born, and what kind of childhood did you have? So um, I was born in Christchurch, 1957. Um, I lived in Papua Nui, which was called Nappy Valley in those days. It was a big flat suburb, if you know Christchurch at all. It was a very Mm. suburban kind of background. Went to the local school, went to the local intermediate, and then when I was a, a high school age, I went to Cottesmore College. For some reason, my parents thought um, I needed a Catholic education with the nuns. And it was really interesting because at that stage, it was all women in the teaching environment, like the, 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 the head nun, you know, and there were just women everywhere. So I was sort of in this kind of all-woman environment and it was sort of, a, I guess, the the beginning of some kind of feminist or woman's thinking if you like um my mum was really creative my dad you know there were um all the vegetables were grown all the clothes were made we you didn't go and buy things you know there was no such thing as you know um rampant consumerism um my dad was a freezing worker my mum was a lingerie uh sewer around the road so it was all very 
based around um, conversations around unions and workers' rights when we had unions and was very working class. Um, but my parents always wanted us to get me, my sister and I, um, tertiary education because they never had that opportunity. They all had to leave school at 14 and 15, et cetera. So mm. um, it, wasn't a whole, it was another generation of, of thinking. Yeah. So, yeah, education was very much part of our upbringing. Mm. Um, and so my life, you, I'm, sorry, yep. Sorry, were you um, were you getting creative even as a child? Oh yes, I remember. Um, I was always making things, you know, like in front of the telly. You know, um, I'd be making Fimo brooches or drawing, or I was always sort of creative because Mum was always making and knitting, and you know, there was always stuff happening being made around me. Mm. Um, and I'd go into the garage with my dad. You know, he had his. Um, man shed you know then with all his tools and I'd be um, watching him making things like making stuff with a hose and you know again you never bought anything you just repaired it yeah yeah but so that was sort of the whole making culture and um, I I guess it was just I just soaked it up yeah Mm, how amazing and um, when you went into high school I mean you obviously sort of really connect with with the teachers and that kind of thing, and and it's something that you've taken through right through your life, teaching. Um, how did you find high school art? So I was one of those kids that spent their lunchtime in the art room. I had a, a really inspirational art teacher, Rhonda Bosworth, who is a New Zealand photographer, woman photographer, very well known, and I. She was quite eccentric and I just thought oh my god this woman is so amazing you know she's so extraordinary and different and and I really got into art history and um and I was was, it's really funny I was talking to her a couple of months ago she came to my show object space and she's and she said you know you weren't that good at art but there was something in you that I identified so it was wow how amazing yeah, and I so still, nice that she could come back to your yeah. exhibition. Yeah, and I still spent a lot of time with her, and she was sort of a mentor. And um, and then I went to Papua Nui High, and I had a really interesting again another quite eccentric art teacher, Sylvia Giddens, and she lived in a yellow bedroom. And I thought, oh my god, a yellow bedroom! And now my bedroom's yellow. Really? So <laughs> you know, these amazing people that you sort of come across, and yeah. um. That have some influence, that long-lasting influence. Yeah, and I think that's why I went into teaching, because of the impact that those art teachers had on my life. Mm, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. So after school, um, I mean, how did you find actual um, the formalities of of school sea art and and that kind of thing? Well, it was a different um, curriculum then. This is pre-NCA, so... I mean, I look at my um, school set art folder and it's like a third form art folder. You know, it's so naive. You know, the, it's quite a different sort of um, ability or level. Um, and I I mean, I did school set art and I did UE and then I, I sort of stumbled at, um, to Wellington Polytech because my sister was at Wellington Polytech doing fashion. So I just sort of stumbled in there and did um, was visual communication and design, which was the graphic design course. I had no idea what graphic design was. I didn't know the difference between fine art, graphic art. I remember the one of the teachers, Roger Hart, was struggling with illustration and he said, um, why didn't you go to art school? And I went, I, I didn't know the difference. You know, I was so, no, I was really? so naive, you know. Yeah, it's interesting that your teachers didn't kind of set you up or guide you in that way. Mm, I think... I was just going to go to Wellington. I had to get out of Christchurch, actually. Yeah. That was the main point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I did the visual communication and design diploma three years. Um, 
which was at uh, Wellington Polytech, which is now Massey University. And it was a course, it was all analog, pre-digital. There was nothing, no, no computing, nothing involved. So there was a lot of, um, like we used Letraset to do lettering. Everything was drawn. We did printmaking. We did black and white photography, colour photography. It was all analog. Mm. So in actual fact, I learned a lot of skills. I probably yeah. had skills at Polytech that maybe I would have at a fine art school. We did printmaking with Kate Coolham. Again, Vivian Lynn, there were these amazing women artists who come into the space. Um, and then from that, I decided I didn't want to go to um, work in that environment, the advertising environment. It didn't, it didn't appeal to me at all. It mm. was very sort of male and um, I, I felt as a woman, you know, you would just be ending up, you know, being the lackey. So yeah, I thought, right, where do I want to go next? Auckland. So um, I was on a, I thought I'll go to the tip of the North Island and my sister, of course, was living here so, so she could, you know, um, I could stay with her. And mm. I went to teacher's college. So I trained to be a, second, a secondary uh, secondary school art teacher. Mm. Well, that's really interesting that you ended up in that. I mean, I can mm. see from your childhood that sort of education connection, but what was it that made you want to go teaching at that point, do you think? Well, I think because I could see holidays, I could see school holidays, I I was still making stuff. I was, you know, I wasn't quite, I hadn't called myself an artist at that stage. I was just, you know, I ha- I just saw this opportunity to work nine to three, you know, short, shortish days. And those days mm. it was shortish, you know, you didn't have so much admin. Yeah. Um, uh, I got paid ninety dollars a week to go to teachers' college for a year. I paid seven dollars rent, oh so that God. kind of puts it in perspective. Yeah. That was probably the wealthiest I've ever been. <laughs> so I came to Auckland, and Auckland was just full of Pacifica. Ponsonby, Graylin was still full of Pacific Island communities. It was such a blast coming from Christchurch, flat white, mm. and so I was, so I was so stimulated here and K Road and um, yeah. It was, it was a great opening up for me and I, I'd walk along and see all these amazing souvenir shops and start buying tat, little bits of plastic tat and all of that kind of stuff. And the thing at Wellington Polytech, it was very much focused on the Bauhaus. It was a very purist um, philosophy, like less is more. Um, everything was, you know, undec- everything was just very sparse and mm, um, European down. design. And I think I came out of that and just kicked the box, kicked, kicked the stall away and said, no, no, I'm going to make everything functional, non-functional. I'm going to add plastic. It's all going to be fairy lights. Um, it was just sort of like, a, hey, I can do what I want kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you came to that actually while you were studying? I think, well, yeah, when I was at Teachers College. And mm-hmm. in some ways I was learning about art also at Teachers College because I didn't, I, I was learning, I was, I taught with artists, so I my mm. first teaching gig was with Philippa Blair, George Belogi, you know, real practicing artists in the classroom, um, and it was really stimulating because I was working with artists. I was sort of it was almost like my finishing school, going to um, mm. you know teachers' college and then mm. in the classroom, yeah. and then I went and taught. I did a teaching section out at. Um, Helensville and there was Cope College and there was Bronwyn Taylor, you know, this amazing woman who was heavily involved in arts education, Sue McBride, um, you know, so mm. I was sort of in this world where art was being talked about, Ted Bracey's art and da, 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 this is all yeah. pre-NCA. Yeah. There was still ceramics 
operating. There were pottery wheels. There were weaving looms. There was screen printing. Mm, All amazing. of that thinking was still in the art room. This is yeah. post Toby, you know, yeah. um, Peter Toby, mm. who um, kind of is the father, the great granddaddy of our arts education, which is now basically disappeared. And I saw it happening when NCEA came in. Yeah. It was STEM, you know, um, science, technology, English, math. They took the A out. Yeah. Um, yeah. The digital definitely. came in. It was STEM, not STEM. Yeah. And, and when you I, look at NCEA in those days, you know, uh, before NCEA, before the actual examination stuff, it was just so much more open, wasn't it? I mean, oh, yeah, all I those it. experiences, it's almost like doing an arts degree at university at, at high school. It's no. very prescriptive now. Yeah. And it's very shut down. And I know my son did it and he said, oh, it's so prescriptive. And mm. and I did a bit of sniffing around a couple of years ago, um, did some workshops out at secondary schools just to measure it, you know. And mm. yeah, it was pretty sad. And then I, I did some marking for, for um, NCA. And yeah, there's a, we've lost a lot, eh? We've thrown away a lot of the, that yeah. kind of. I would say creativity, you know. Oh, absolutely. And it's so sad because it seems like on one hand, people are talking about creativity and how important it is. Um, but in schools, it's just kind of going out the window. Yeah, and a lot of it is to do with the confidence of the art teacher. Yeah. And that's what Toby did is he took artists from Otago like Hotary and McCann and Marilyn Webb, trained them to be art teachers, you know, so... That was an amazing experiment and it was completely holistic and kids mm. the kilns, it was dance, it was mm. theatre, it was the yeah. whole hoo-ha, you know. Yeah, And so we've good. sort of lost that risk element, I think. Mm. Yeah, and the richness, yeah. I yeah. think, sadly. So uh, from training college, you went to, were you at Kuiper College teaching there for a while? Um, I did a section there and oh, then right. I went to Henderson High, taught with Chris Hill. Yeah. I taught for there for about four years, so that was my... Um, uh, initiation into art teaching you make every mistake once <laughs> <laughs> and many mistakes are made at the beginning yes. of teaching oh yeah, yeah you certainly do yeah. um but it was and a you... really great art department Chris Hill was great yeah and I got to teach Michael Jones sixth form art lovely boy <laughs> wow <laughs> so there was some and uh Jan Hell Regal there were some pretty cool kids that went through yeah. the art department yeah and then I went to Westlake Girls and that was like my finishing school because um, again, it was like another um, layer of art teaching and expectation and a mm. whole lot of very hardworking art teachers there. And I got to mm. teach Heather Gale Braith, who was one of yeah, my star students. I read that. And uh, it's interesting yeah. because I went to Westlake Girls, but I think I left just before you came. Ah, right. In about 1984. I, uh, no, yeah, 84, 85 I left. Right, yes. Yeah, so yeah. She's only yep. just retired. Has she? Yeah. Oh my goodness! Wow, she's been there a long time. Long time. And I was there with people like Kate Sylvester and um, ah, right, amazing talent who were all sort of heavily into that art department. But yeah. I, I didn't actually take art myself at high school, which was interesting. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, I read that something that Heather had said about you that you were so inspiring for her, and and then you yeah. end up now you're working for her with um at Object yes. Space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is like the full circle, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think that's really important, like an in, in intergenerational um, mentoring mm. and support, which we sort of under, we don't kind of celebrate. Um, 
it's like you're fucker papa, you know, you've got to, mm. you know, the people before, you've got to acknowledge the people who've gone before yeah. on the journey. Yeah, totally. And you did that with um, the people who taught you. You know, it's quite lovely. It's, it's, yes. It's a total double circle, isn't it? Very it's much really, so. And really I think nice. that's why I've kept teaching because I see the value in it. And then I did about five years at Westlake Girls and I never taught art history because I never wanted to take work home because that was my precious studio time. And at that stage, I'd started making um, things for Cook Street Market. I used to um, sell little things there. And then I used to make trays and bowls and things for um, real times. So people like Peter Rogers was really mm. supportive. Oh, really? And what, what kind of thing were you making for Cook Street Market? Um, I was buying plastic oh, trays. I was, like, making wooden trays. And painting them with zebra stripes and putting oh, wow. dowling around them and plastic bowls with tickies on their legs, cool. um, cups and saucers like with legs and things so they're all, you know, decorative. Uh, lots of plastic flowers because you could buy plastic flowers everywhere. It's mm. quite hard now. Yeah. Um, sticking, gluing stuff on, et cetera, et cetera. And then I um I had a Polaroid camera and I was taking photographs of all these objects I was making and I took them over to Masterworks when they were on you know Denport, mm. thinking you know I could sell my works there. And she was looking through the book and going, mm, "Well, we only deal with materials with integrity." And I'm going, "Ah, I am not a craftsperson. I do not fit here. I do not make clay, metal. Yeah, interesting. I make plastic, which breaks down and is so problematic." Mm. And so that was really good for me because I went, mm. ah, okay, I'm an artist. I'm going to try and show my work in a gallery. Um, and at that stage, I'd also gone into partnership with Sarah McKinney, who was a ceramicist, and we opened a little shop called The Blue Room in Richmond Road, um, which was um, before Grayland got zhuzhied up. It was basically a brothel and a hairdresser and secondhand shops. <laughs> and... Um, we sort of opened two days a week for about two hours. You had to be quick. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But we sort of used the window as a showcase for our work and yeah. we showed other artists and ceramicists and other makers and that was sort of my dipping my toe into that sort of e- exhibit kind of area. Mm, that's a great way to do it, start your own. I've, yeah, your I've own done place. all that. Yeah, I've always mm. had to self-initiate. I think mm. that's the thing because no one else is going to do it for you, eh? Mm, no. Yes, yeah. you've got to have your own vision and control it. Absolutely. But that's quite a scary thing, isn't it, for people to head out there by themselves? You know? Or you do um, or you do it with a group, a collective. And so mm. we did Test Trip in the old days, then Cuckoo, and that was just with a bunch of friends, a bunch of artists, finding a space and supporting each other. Mm. And, you know, and you've still got artist-run spaces like Room and um, all those places, so you 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 don't wait for it to come to you. I think you make it happen, yeah. and then it, they all then they come to you, kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. So, is it? Do you think that people start noticing those artist-run spaces, like gallery owners, and, yes. and they they come to you? Yeah, definitely. I think definitely that's a way to get your work out. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's great because you find your people. Yeah, you know, it's the collective. You're sharing it. It's a conversation. Yeah, it's really important. And mm. I think people don't understand that collectivity in the art world. They think it's just, this, you know, the singular and individual. But in actual fact, as soon as you do, that energy is really interesting because you, you think about theatre and music, you know, it's all the collective. Um, yeah. 
a group of, of artists working together, bouncing mm. off ideas and all that yes. kind of stuff. Yeah, I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So you started with that. And, and at that time, were you making, what kind of things were you making at that point? Uh, uh, with test and stuff. Um, so I just had a show at the George Fraser, which basically, our shop was called the Blue Room in mm. Greyland. So I basically took the Blue Room and put it into the George Fraser Gallery. So I took all those objects and put changed the context by putting them in a gallery space. So suddenly the table that looked like New Zealand, painted like New Zealand, became something else. Mm. So, so I understood the shift between objects and context and art. So then I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to call this art. And then from that, um, my good friend Julian Dashper, who's no longer with us, he said to me, so when you fill in your immigration paper at the airport, what do, what do you put? And I put, oh, teacher. He says, no, no, you put artist. And then as soon as I started doing that, it's like I became an artist. I call myself an artist because I used to say I was an art teacher. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And do you mm. think that sort of changed the way that you worked or the way you saw your your art? Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. My shoulders went back and I was yeah. an artist, you know, and I claimed yeah. that space because – there's no rules, you know, no one can say you're mm. not, you know. Um, yeah, anyone can so come good. in at any entry and, and be an artist, you know. Yeah, and it gives you that confidence, I guess, to sort of develop your own practice in the way that you want to. Mm. And oh. also it was quite different then because um, the sort of mid-'80s, early-'90s, the dealers were just sitting on their hands, you know. They were making enough money. Uh, institutions were very disinterested in contemporary art practice. So we were quite frustrated, and that's why we did test strip because you know there was people like Daniel Malone, Denise Kum, Giovanni Intra. You know these are you know New Zealand contemporary artists, mm. and we were kind of punk. You know we we had a space in Vulcan Lane, and um, we were just going to show ourselves, and then suddenly we were showing uh, Ronnie Van Hout and Isabel Tom and Simon Cumming, and all these New Zealand contemporary artists came knocking on the door because they could see. Mm. You know, this they was were connecting. Where, yeah, where they fitted, and then yeah. we had people like Ricky Swallow, and then we went international, and then we burnt out because this is what happens mm. um, when you have these spaces as you burn out, and um, and your your own practice and everything suffers. So we all just yeah. all went our separate ways. Yeah. Because I guess you're uh, you're looking at it as a more holistic thing with running the whole business side mm. of things, as well as trying to develop your art practice. Yeah, and teach, yeah. and yeah. then I got pregnant, and it was like, oh, too much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, um, I mean, the work that you were doing, were you initially seeing it as sort of assemblage and installation work, or was it only when you started to put it into gallery spaces that you could see how the how the objects all work together? Yes, definitely. And there was, yeah, and there's people like Marilyn Tweedy or, you know, P. Mule, who was also working in that area with found objects. And so there were a few of us kind of, you know, raiding the op shops and the markets and and playing with, you know, the found objects, not a new thing, you know, it goes back to Duchamp and the urinal, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And I used to talk to Marilyn about it and it was like, this is a, a really sustainable practice. We're not over-investing. Because I was seeing artists like mortgaging their houses to make huge sculptures. It's like, oh my god, I can't do that, you know. So it was a, it was a light way to make art. It was reusing. It was before all this upcycling, you know. Um, it was using things that already had another life, which I really enjoyed. That someone had owned it and thrown it away, and I was picking it out and then putting it mm. back into some other form. Yeah. 
and, and the found the, object, yeah, it's got such a resonance, you know. And absolutely. Then, and mm. in those days that was pretty radical. I mean, in some ways you could see yourself as a pioneer and 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 that kind of thing of reusing objects, repurposing. Yeah, I remember I had a show at Greg Flint down in Wellington. So he was a dealer down there and I, I took some work in and um, uh, I remember someone, an artist, I can't remember if it was, wandering around and he said, oh, it's just stuff from junk shops. You know, he was he was quite challenged by it. And I used to do these um, shrines. I used to make a lot of shrines with all the lights and plastic flowers and mirrors and things like that, sort of talking about that, you know, very kitsch. Everything was very kitsch and bright and plastic because plastics was a no-no, no-no-no, can't have plastic, bad, hot glue gun, you know, everything about it just challenged that the the um, the the authority of the well-made object and I was just slapping the stuff together with plastic and everything um so that was that was good too and, and that mm. and then a lot of people saw that as a way to diminish the work you know they'd call it oh it's domestic you know being a woman making these sorts of works domestic it's too domestic it's too decorative it's too bright it's too colorful so you know this is the way they would frame the work mm. to diminish it out of the conversation yeah, of the canon, you know, the great canon, mm. which um, was was being held by you know a lot of people in art history departments. Mm. But um, that must have been so hard for you. I mean, how did you? Oh no, did, I was did it bother you? No, you no, because I was I was teaching. I had I made a living out of teaching. I didn't have to make a living out of my art practice. So that gave me the freedom to be a bit cheeky, you know. And I mm. celebrated that I could go into these spaces and poke a bit of fun, you know. Mm. Um, and, and challenge people, I guess. And challenge people. And um, and it wasn't, yeah, and like I said, there was um, Marilyn, there was Paul Cullen, there was a whole sort of generation of us, you know, putting the found object in the space. Um, mm, it's amazing. Mm. So great. And, you yeah. know, since, since then, since the 80s, you've been using um, materials from op shops and bargain stores and industrial um, factories and, you know, from all over the place, and and yes. you've really you've stuck with that, haven't you? Really? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Stuff on the side of the road. You know, I find amazing things, bits of foam and stuff. Mm. You know, every it's, it's, I read this great book. Um, what was his name? It's my Bible. Um, oh, the bl- essays on the blurring of art and life by Alan Capral. Uh huh. And, you know, he's a, uh, he was a sort of a situationalist and a um, performance artist. And after reading that, everything became a work of art. I couldn't, it was like everything I looked at, the cup, the pen, you know, everything mm. became an, a possibility for art. How amazing. And that's yeah. so, so liberating that you've got the sole sort of yes. area that you can develop. And would you say that you start with, with the materials when you're making something or do you have an idea draw pictures and then find the materials um it usually goes like when the um the like breton and the surrealists used to have this thing called what was it called i can't remember anyway you go to a market and the object finds you so a lot of it is you don't go looking for anything because you won't find it but if you go in this headspace the object will find you so i practice that and now i just it's so I just switch right in, you know, I can mm. go anywhere, you know, and find stuff will leap out at me. How amazing. Possibility. And then yeah. it just sits in the studio. Sometimes it just sits there for years, sitting, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then um, and then I go, oh, I need to go and find more of that material. 
years oh, later. That's so good. That's yeah, such so a good a way to put it. Long, slow burn. Yeah, you know, it's time. Being mm. being an artist is time. It's not something you have to invest a lot of time, and you have to invest your whole practice over time. And I think that's what people don't understand is that you you have your studio, you go into that space, and you get into the zone of making. The dopamine's going, you're going, yoo-hoo, this is great, I'm loving this, you know, woohoo. And um, and then suddenly someone appears at the door and you jump out of your skin. You know, you're mm, so yeah. in this in the zone in or the in the space. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. And it's just kind of allowing yourself time to be in that space, isn't it? Mm. Like, you know, so often artists are, are so busy, or people, especially starting their creative journey, so busy with other things that they just don't have that time to build no. and grow and think and yeah know. it is it's a privilege and mm. and then you have you know life you know you have partners you have children you know like when I had my son I was like oh my god my time so mm. I just adjusted my practice to a very repetitive I was doing ink blots over books so I'd go I'd have a, a couple of minutes I'd go down and do an ink blot you know so oh, mm. I've done something today or yeah. you know I tried to do very simple repetitive things and a lot of my making is very analog and repetitive over time mm. um so yeah the, and and a lot of joining like taking something and making another one another one another one, another and then yeah joining them all together yeah sequences mm. and that's good that's a good way to when you haven't got so much headspace to mm. just kind of grow and develop mm. I remember ideas. Um, what's her name Carol Shepard said look even if I just go and sweep the floor of my studio, that, that's all I can do. I've done something. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Mm. Yeah, and um, it seems like you have you like to bring or sort of make connections between people and the plastics. And um, I read somewhere that you, I think it was for this latest exhibition that you saw in a factory in Christchurch that was named... Um, the name of your exhibition. oh com- yes competitive plastic so yeah it's a, fa- a, de- a defunct factory just around the road from my dealer down there and I, it just stuck in my mind this great this idea of competitive pla- plastics competing and then I thought about the brain and the shared language how we have a lot of shared language around material like plasticity the brain means it's fluid and learning mm, rigid true. the brain's rigid it's not learning um uh, plastic is fluid, then becomes rigid. Plastic is problematic, um, yeah. and then you have plastic competing. What does that mean? You know, mm. so it, it sort of for me it was like a great umbrella in terms of of talking about learning, and then of course talking to Heather. You know, being teach, she's a teacher. I was a teacher. She was my pupil, and then we talked about well, how do we learn? You know, what's what's that process of learning? And it's when the mind is you know open and things are firing and neurons and pathways are formed. And when you're in that um, creative state, that first creative state, it's uh, they call it the fold. So we got into a bit of um, Deleuze, but we skirted around, you know, the French European philosophy and went straight for Catherine Malibu, who was much more accessible. Mm. And they talk about the fold. So there's two stages. Um, the first fold, which is grace, is when you are aware and you're creating so you're learning the piano and you're learning over and over and over and over again you're aware you're in the zone of creating the dopamine's going and that's the first fold the second fold is disease 
And that's when you lose that awareness and you're doing stuff that you're not aware you're doing. So you're smoking 20 cigarettes a day or you're mm. drinking, you know, three bottles of wine and, you know, or your addiction. It's about addiction. So that second fold is the addictive. So, and that's kind of interesting when you talk about, again, the, the mind, how it loses, it becomes rigid. So, you know, you're, not, you're unaware and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. there's a lot of bodily relationship, um, I'd say, in that thinking, yeah. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah. And um, when you think about the work that you do, I mean, I, I love the, the work that you've done with the ping pong balls and the um, – in the landscape, you know, in nature. So (laughs) I really love that one. And uh, so that was, uh, for people listening, that was um, putting, attaching ping pong balls that had been painted with fluoro colours onto little sticks, tiny sticks, and placed over, you know, into the grass, basically, on the riverbank, wasn't it, in Hamilton? Yeah, and so, uh, I mean, I I know a lot of that project was around sort of involving the community and that kind of thing and having people coming in. And you also worked at Hamilton Girls, didn't you, to do a similar project? Yes, yes. So So uh, what what do you love about that kind of thing, involving community? um, So I was sort of talking, that was called The Plant. The first version was called The Plant, and it's about toxicity. You know, like these are ping-pong balls are problematic, the fluoro is problematic. So it was sort of placing the toxic into the into nature and thinking about things that are happening now you know to do with climate and plastics and how we affect you know the landscape and so the plant was what was really funny because I I used um skewers you know bamboo skewers yeah but I'd had I had the point upward coming through the um ping pong ball I should have had it down and so all these kids were coming along stabbing themselves so whoops (laughs) Health and safety, pre-health and then I redid it at Hamilton Girls and we got the whole school involved and we included tinfoil and other processes. And it was quite interesting because there was a bit of a flack about the use of the plastics and I was challenged by, well, what are you going to do? You've just used all this plastic. And in actual fact, they recycled them and made them into big jank giant lays that they put around the hall so mm, it wasn't nice. a problem but I had to justify yeah you know buying several thousand ping pong balls and making this work mm. so it became a conversation point yeah and, um, and I think that was that was good you know mm, absolutely mm. and it's a great thing for the children to be part of yes oh it was great fun yeah yeah how cool and it looked beautiful too I think yeah yeah, yeah that yeah. worked there were some really neat kids there, eh? It was, I was really impressed with that. It's a great art department. Mm, yeah. And that and they would have that would have stayed with them, you know, for years and years. Mm. Probably influenced them just like you were influenced by yeah. your, your teacher. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's very cool. And um, what is it that you love about that sort of collaborative side of of working? I mean, obviously with the art spaces, the shared artist spaces, and and working with big groups of people and particularly teenagers and, and kids. Mm. Um, what is it that you love? Do, oh, you like actually, do you actually work with other artists on projects as yes, well? Yes, I collaborate. Um, I like the possibilities. It's open-ended because there's no answer. Basically without there's no right answer. It's just a conversation. And when you're working with other people, you know, you, you get this, um, uh, it's just a richer kind of conversation. And um, I um yeah and I think it goes against that again that whole idea of the artist being the individual you know 
working away alone in the studio. In actual fact, that doesn't have to be like that. You know, when you think of Pacific Island communities, for them, that way of working isn't even in their language. You know, they, mm. every day is a collaborative piece of artwork from the moment they wake up, you know. Yeah. Um, so we sort of put art outside, separate in a box, you know. Mm. In actual fact, it doesn't. You know, it's a very Western way. Of mm. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when it comes to composition, I mean, that really interests me as, as a painter. I'm not sort of, well, obviously considering composition in my paintings, but how do you consider composition when you're creating an assemblage of work or installation of some sort? How do you think about space? Um, I think it's very organic. Um, there's a lot of playing that goes on, a lot of moving around, lots of versions, different versions. I have a visual diary, but it's mainly words or sentences or lists and a few squiggly drawings. Um, so I have got a, a sort of a, um, a history of ideas stacked up in these diaries and sometimes I go back. Um, but it's very much to do with the material I'm playing with and what it can and can't do. If, it, if I can't glue it, do I have to make a hole, you know. So there's all these sort of ways of making, I guess, that determine the final outcome, yeah. Mm, that's so cool because I love I love the way your work, you know, it's there's so much variation in the way you put work together. It's, yes. it's not just the uh, the actual objects, it's it's how they've been placed. Or, yes. No, I'll never forget when I was working at Auckland Art Gallery uh, and we just reopened after the renovation and your laser bloom was up up high in one of the spaces. Oh, yeah, those four... 400 pieces or something, yeah. Yeah, and that was so magnificent. I just yeah. absolutely love those. And so uh, can you talk about Laser Bloom? Oh, so Laser Bloom, gosh, that's my um, largest artwork ever. I still make them. It's ongoing. Um, it's kind of also my bread and butter. I just sell a few every month through my dealers. And, yeah, people just are attracted to them. They they um, they go, God, where do they plug in? Because the edges sort of light up. Yeah. It's just such a simple process. Um, I use the oven at home. It's like so simple. And that's coloured um, coloured perspex, fluorescent perspex. Yes. Yeah, pink and green. I used to be able to get orange, but then they stopped importing it. Oh, really? And I've got one, I go to Mapu out at Modern Signs and he, he's he been providing, he's been with my journey forever. Mm. And, um, yeah, I just keep, they just keep producing and keep making them and, People love them and I love mm. making them because they're very joyous. Yeah, they very certainly joyous. are. I I yeah. absolutely love them. In fact, I think I need to own one. Oh, you do. <laughs> I know Sonia got a few for her 50th birthday. Yes. <laughs> our, our mutual friend. I was very jealous. Um, but, but they're cool. And they are, you know, the way they, are they actually polished around the edge or do they just naturally? No, no, that is just what happens. It's refracted light in the edge. Oh, amazing. Yes, it's just a a product of the plastic and the material. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. Yeah, and they they feel like flowers, but then you've got that sort of um, tension between, you know, the pretty flower with other ideas. So what, what are the ideas behind it? Um, well, I guess there's the, you know, the toxicity again, you know, laser bloom. So, um, and it's interesting because fluorescence, like, you know, the ground that we live on, uh, it's we manufacture it you know but when you think about what is below us you know reefs and all that kind of stuff it's there's fluorescent fish there's all that fluorescence going on you know in the sea mm, mm. and then when you go alpine you get amazing algae and mosses that are fluorescent 
Yeah. So it seems the top and the bottom creates yeah. these sort of colours, but in this middle earth that we live in, we don't have it, but we make it, you know, and it also means danger and alert, mm, you know, you true. think about yeah. road cones and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And even phosphorescence, all that yes. kind of amazing stuff underwater. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty beautiful. And um, you actually had a beautiful commission quite recently at the Auckland Art Gallery. So um, can you tell us about that? That's called Limbo, and that was uh, made for the beautiful North Atrium um, in that Auckland Art Gallery space. And, um, you know, for people who don't know the gallery, it's a gorgeous, massive sort of three-storey, four-storey space, and uh, it has all that beautiful kauri wood on the ceilings and um, lots of light coming through and looking through the the windows into the park. Um, So can you tell us about that whole process of how they approached you for that commission, what you had to consider, and then how you came up with the the concept? Yeah, sure. So that was through Natasha Conlon, the curator. And so they said, oh, you know, would you, you know, we're we're quite keen on getting something in here. And so I did a couple of proposals. but then I, the problem with that space is that the hanging points are really light. I think the architects had an idea that they didn't want anything disturbing their beautiful kauri canopy. <laughs> so <laughs> everything is very oh, light. Dear. Like the hanging points were like so light and so oh, really compromised what I could yeah. make. Yeah, That's so surprising. yeah, I don't know. I think I think it is quite fragile. It's not that strong. Um, yeah, it is a problem. And also the doors weren't wide enough to get big stuff in. Oh, there wow. quite a few interesting issues. Anyway, um, at that stage, I, I was really interested in silver and foil, you know, that aluminium tape that you get from the plumbers. I was sort of winding that round stuff. I was, was really attracted to that sharp and shiny. And then one day I was cooking and I, I had um, a lump of tin foil and I screwed it up. You know how you screw it up, mm-hmm. throw it away, and then I went, oh, no, hold on. And then I looked at it and it was just this really beautiful form and it had my handprint in it and it was all scrunched and faceted. I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then I was walking down the street and I saw a, another bit, you know, someone's lunch tinfoil squashed and I thought, oh, that's really, you know, and I was getting all these messages about tinfoil. Mm. And so I made a little model of these squashed tinfoil forms Um we had to present it to the funders and the patrons and all that kind of stuff. And they went, yeah, 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 we, yeah, we like the idea of the big giant foil balls and they'll be covered in gems and spray painted. So I had little paint aspects on them as well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I had to make it. And, um, of course, it had to be very light and it couldn't be solid foil because it would collapse. And so I went out and saw my mate, Andrew Turney from Gyro, who does props for films and things. And, of course, mm-hmm. he's he's a genius and he spent sleepless nights trying to figure out how to make these things and so what we did was I took out the little tiny foil balls and he scanned them and then he um, put them on a computer program enlarged them up in the computer program worked out their weights etc etc and he did the whole process of well how are we going to make them so the insides had to be very very light but strong so he got a um he made some 3D, uh, very thin ply skeletons. It was very much like building a boat. Mm. So we had this this, um, ribbing, which was very light ply, and then he found a spa pool guy maker out west and he sprayed the inside with the foam 
And then we oh, put wow. no, we put the foil on. He found builder's foil, which was an installation, which was the perfect material that looked like tin foil. And then we scrunched that all on, and then did a very very light spray of foam at the back so that the forms would stay. And he mm. worked out all these amazing hanging systems with poles and engineering. There's an engineering involved. So yeah. basically, I just they just I handed over and they just made it. Um, so yeah, no, it was a really great, great opportunity to work to scale. Mm, that sounds incredible. And it stayed there, I think it was there about five years. Mm. Yeah. And now I had to, and then they rang up and say, Oh, hey, can you come and get that work out of storage? We need the storage. You're going, what? There was like nine giant bits of Oh my goodness. What do I do with it? And so I tried giving it away. Um, I offered it <laughs> around all the galleries. Do you want it? No, not too big. Really? And and they didn't they didn't think, see of it see that as part of their collection. Um, well, I think I, I, I sort of sprung it on them, you know, and they needed two years to have meetings, and so um, the opportunity came. I know the guys who run Splore, and I said, "Oh, look, do you want this work?" And they went, "Yeah, sure." Mm, that's they perfect. Explore, yeah, yeah. So they got the truck, and the boys put it in the truck, and now it lives out on site under in a shed, and they ah. They, they bring it out. out every year. Yeah, so it's, oh, it's gone to a happy party place. Yeah, that's very appropriate, I'd say, for that piece. Yeah. <laughs> How good. Well, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Judy. And uh, you referred earlier to um, to your work that was sometimes called kitsch, and you have been known as the queen of kitsch. <laughs> what does the word kitsch mean to you, and how do you feel about that description the queen of um, I did um, resign from that position in the early 90s. I abdicated because <laughs> it was, you know, people were just seeing the work as, as it was too light, you know, and it was like it was a way to diminish the work. So I had to mm. abdicate. Yeah, I did good. play it up, though. I played it up for a bit. Um, um, it got me on the, you know, Women's Weekly. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Kitsch for me is, it's, there's this great book called, oh, here it is, look, right here, The Artificial Kingdom, The Treasury of Kitsch Experience, which was my Bible. And oh, wow. this this sort of validated the practice because it talks a lot about the aura of an object, um, the souvenir, which is nostalgic, um, all these associations around with the Kitsch object. Um, mm. So and and so it kind of gave me permission to work in that space and mm. you know kitsch is some you know like the art world is particularly you know good taste you know and again I wanted to hijack that thinking and mm. insert you know bad taste in a way you know and I think I had mm. a show called bad taste and again it was part of that pushing out the you know opening up space for other conversations around mm. art and objects yeah and um you know, and kitsch is attractive. We love it. Why mm. do we love it? Because it's bright and it's colourful and and that's like plastic. It's like lollies. You know, that's why toys made of brightly coloured plastic. We are yeah. attracted to sharp, colourful things. So yeah. inherently in our nature. And um, they talk about the hierarchies of art, you know, like folk art and um, colour. Colour is, um, there's a great book called Chromophobia by was it Bruce Batchelor and he talks about how people um wealthy people's lots of taste eliminate color so for them to live in the big white beautiful box is the aspiration for taste because you remove color 
And so colour is for the peasants, you know. So there's all this sort of hierarchy around mm, it. How so sad. Yeah, challenge all that as well. Yeah. yeah. And the colour, I mean, obviously colour is a, is a huge part of what you do. I mean, mm. have, have you ever, I guess sometimes you have monochromatic works with things like the tinfoil. Yes, that's true. And I did do a black and white series, Anna Miles's once, just to test the market, and they all sold. Really? <laughs> And what, what what were they? What was that? They were big, giant, um, uh, screen-printed, big black squares, and then I put white stickers and paint on. Oh. So they were sort of like um, wobbly, what I call them wobbly walters. They were like mm. very abstract. Um, That's just a funny noise from our Zoom meeting. Um, so it was very, um, yeah, it was just a, a bit of a test and mm. then, and how did you feel about not using? Oh color? well, it was proven. The experiment was proven, and they were great works. You know, I did, and I, you know, but then I went back and put color in. I remember mm. Pat Hanley used to tell the story where he sort of hit, um, you know, uh, a block, and so he went into a studio and turned the lights out and pulled the curtains and painted in the dark. So that was sort of my moment, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> how cool! Yeah, it's interesting, but you've never really come back to the black and white monochromatic idea. Um, no, not so much, no. But it's, the work's quite formal within it. You know, I, I am actually a formalist in a way. It, it might look loose, but in actual fact it's very formal. And I think in the object space show that's on at the moment, you can see that there's a lot of formality, if you like, within it, yeah. What do you mean by formality? Uh, repeating a process, uh, repeating the material over and over, repeating the shape, the form, Um like one work called Lunge, which is a series of net stockings, you know, black net stockings. So there's that formality of the netting repeat over and over and then inside of these plastic forms. So, um, yeah, I mean, it looks like it's a ray, it's, but it isn't, you know, it's still there, yeah. Mm. And that, what is that actually talking about that? Is it something to do with fetish, fetish the sort of idea of fetish objects? Um, or the, yeah, yeah there's referring a lot, to the body, isn't it? Yeah, the body. Yeah, so the so there's the stockings. There's a whole lot of cigarette packets. I got um, there's hundreds and hundreds of cigarette packets under Perspex, which talks about that habit. You know, the disease, mm. that repetition, repetition, repetition. Um, there's a giant raw shaft. You know, the big ink block painting, which is called Code, and that talks about trying to read into things. You know, read into images. Um, yeah, so a lot of it is very, I think a lot of my work is to do with the body or comes out of the sensation of the body because this mm. is what we live in. You know, everything we invent comes from the body. So um, there's Marshall McLuhan, the medium of the message. He was a thinker in the 70s and he talked about, you know, a fork is an extension of our hand, a spade is an extension of our hand. Everything we make is to do with our body and the computer is an extension of our nervous system and our brain. So um yeah we in the world we inhabit comes from our body you know we have the shared language of the arteries of the city you know um the parks are the lungs of the city so mm. we're referencing back again yeah mm, yeah yeah i can see that in a lot of your work actually and um just going back to the covid times in 2020 I read somewhere that you uh, even though for you crafting and making art is is your happy place obviously uh, through lockdown, you found it hard to make work. Is that right? Yeah, I was 
too anxious. I, yeah, I couldn't make anything. I couldn't concentrate. And I was just, the world was just crashing in, you know, this pandemic was just crashing in. And, um, yeah, I just, yeah, I felt like things were changing and things have changed. Mm, the yeah. world is now completely different post-COVID. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I was sort of sensing that, oh, what what are we, what what's going to happen? And then when I, um, and then, I'm still in that sort of looking round space going, well, in the art world, I think the arts are low-hanging fruit, um, you know, like already budgets and councils, all the arts budgets are going, mm. arts, art schools are getting hammered. Um, so the arts are, are uh, you know, if you've got an infrastructure, you, you're going to pay the, fix the drains or the artists, you know, the drains will come first. So yeah. I was looking around at where all the resources are, like, okay, here we go. Who gets all the resources and what are they doing with them in the art world? And isn't it time to share? I think we all need to start looking at what is out there and we need to share. And I think that is slowly happening a little bit. The message is there. Mm. Um, There's quite a bit of focus with the government. You know, there was the art artists um, supporting artists over lockdown. That was really good, all that um, business stuff. Yeah. So there was a, a bit of a rush to throw money at arts and arts makers, but um, what we did do over lockdown was uh, Richard Orgis, artist Heidi Brickle, uh, Mark Harvey, and myself and Rebecca Hobbs formed Arts Makers RTRO because it seemed like the perfect time. And we haven't had any arts advocacy groups since the Artists Alliance disappeared. So this was. Um, we thought, right, now's the time. We've got time over lockdown. So we formed Arts Makers Aotearoa, which is focused on makers, arts makers, for makers. So we are all makers. We're not people who work in the industry. We're not, you know, um, we're, we're not paid to work in the arts like a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got 600 members. We're slowly, slowly building resources we've joined um up with copyright where we're all looking around each other and and trying to form some kind of support advocacy structure and we want to go to the top we want to this has to come from the top government level we want artists wages artist contracts to be um you know properly monitored i don't know if you've noticed but everyone gets paid except the artist i don't get paid to be an artist but the janitor at the art gallery gets paid mm, you know mm, yeah. everyone the curators everyone mm. above us the factory floor we are mm. the factory floor we're the arts workers we don't get paid but yes. everyone else does yeah, exactly so yeah. we take all the precarity we take yeah. all the risks um mm. we make the work we pay the rent we have the hospital jobs the teaching jobs we have supportive partners mm. you know it's precarious and it's yeah it is isn't it yeah it puts mm. so much more pressure on everybody doesn't it mm. Yeah, oh, well, it's good that you're fighting the fight. I'm sure you can yep. do great things with that. Yep. And you've also you're also the co-publisher of Femisphere, um, and that's a project that supports women's art practices in New Zealand. Yes. So uh, um, yeah, how how did that come about? Well, that was an, an again another intergenerational conversation. I um, Imogen Taylor, painter, a painter in her thirties, mid thirties. Uh, worked at Studio Supplies and I'd go in there and I'd go, hey, how's it going for women artists these days? And I was going, oh, my God, nothing's changed. <laughs> mm. so, so we had this shared conversation and um, we both had a, a zine practice. I used to be involved with strips, which was a, a zine in the old days. 
mm-hmm. Mary Linton and um, and an Imogen has her own zine practice. And so we thought, well, what can we do? So we made a list of all the New Zealand women artists practicing that we could think of. And we thought, well, there's hundreds. What can we do? So we thought, well, why don't we make a zine? What do you so, mean by zine, Judy? So a zine is um, a little magazine. Okay. Like a zine, it's a traditional A5, where is it? Um, it's a traditional magazine zine format, which you make yourself. Um, it's an A4 folded in half. That's mm-hmm. so A5. A5. You do yeah. it yourself, you print it yourself, you just distribute it yourself, etc. So there's a whole population of, you know, zine makers and they have conferences and ah, stuff cool. like that. So we got together and we thought, well, let's make a zine. And so we invited um, women artists to um, think about a woman who, another woman artist who influenced them or they buzzed about or was their inspiration or something and then respond to them and make a work. So we've done four issues. We got with the first issue, um, I think my mum had passed away. And so I used a little bit of the money for um, that she left to print the first one. And then the next three, we applied to CNZ and we got funding to do the next three. Oh, that's good. And so we've we've completed the project. But the fourth one hit with COVID. And we thought, no, we're not going to print this one. We're going to put it online. So we've got a website with all mm. the issues up. Um and we decided to pay the woman artists so we could have more in, on the website. So we wanted to support more women artists. Mm. So that's all now online. You just Google um, Femisphere, www.femisphere.co.nz, and all four issues are online. Oh, so, so good. That yeah, sounds brilliant. Good. And uh, I'll put a link to that in your blog. Yeah. But, um, so, and you've, you've got an Instagram. That's yeah, on Instagram, Instagram too, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. Arts Makers too, Arts Makers Aotearoa. Yeah. And um, is that so? In the actual zine, in the in the in this magazine, is it the work that these women have made in response to another artist's work? Yes. It's yeah. it's it's showing the the piece and then the story behind it, or what? Um, some are more subtler than others. They've, they've just interpreted. You know, we just let the woman do what they wanted. We've got a sound work in there. Um, um, some of the yeah, some it's very subtle, but yeah. Yeah, we mm. didn't want to, you know, it's mm. trusting the artist and what yeah. they do. Yeah. yeah, that sounds great. Very cool. Well, I mean, it sounds like you you seem so much sort of a part of community and, and supporting women and supporting artists and, and really supporting the New Zealand arts sector, which is fantastic. And you've been such a pioneer to me with, with the kind of work that you make, but then also you have these beautiful connections with schools and, and students and that kind of thing. So I'd love to ask you, what would you like to see more of in the New Zealand visual arts sector? I'd like to see arts get back in the curriculum. Um, I think it's getting really hammered and now they're going to roll, I think, print, sculpture and painting into one subject. There's some thinking like that. Doesn't sound great. Um, I'd like to see uh, arts valued. You know, we have five pages of sport in the media every day. How about one on the arts? You know, we need to raise the value of the art conversation. Yeah. Um, In the old days, we used to have TV programs about the arts. I mean, where have they all gone? Mm, Kaleidoscope. 
Yeah, huh, I remember uh, that. A new, new art land, you know, all yeah, all yeah. are disappearing. So why mm. why is that happening? Um, and I think again, that's from education. So if we had really, if if art was in the curriculum right through, it wouldn't be a sort of a, an unusual thing to do. You know, it would just be part of part of everyday life. Mm. Um, artists on sustainable with having sustainable careers, so that. I know that, um, like in the Netherlands, they have an artist's um, wage. You get paid 250 euro a week or something. You know, some sort of um, artist. They used to have the artist doll, but you know, it was mm. loaded because it was the, yeah. the language around it wasn't, yeah. wasn't great. You know, some way that studios. I'd love to see. Um, you know, council support studio spaces, especially now because it's so expensive to live in the main cities. A lot of artists can't afford studios. A lot mm-hmm. of artists are leaving the city. They're going back to the regions, which is probably a good thing. Um, um, yeah, just some sort of ground, grassroots, back to the beginning support. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's people like you who hopefully will make changes, you know. We well, need but, people like you. Yeah, yeah I'm, what am I now? I'm nearly 65. I've got another 10, 15 years to get some stuff done. So I'm sure you will. I'm quite sure. <laughs> and so, uh, Judy, would you have any advice to people starting on their creative journey? So it's very different now than when I started. I mean, I was just flip-flopping or, you know, I was stumbling into it. It's more of a career now. You know, it's definitely a career. I don't know what the path is. The path's a bit bumpy, but um, I think you need to have some way to support yourself. Um, it always scares me when I just say I'm going to make a living out of my work. You know, I think that's a death nail because you never will. Um, there's not enough, um, you know, it's a very small arts community here and you're relying on the same sort of um, resources. Um, I think take find your people. Take your people with you, you know, like like uh, that that leap from art school into artist-run space is such a valuable experience. Um, I mean, you're gonna if you go if you go to art training tertiary, you're gonna probably come out with debt, you know, a student loan, and that's problematic um, as well. You know, you have to carry that debt with you. Mm. So I think I think just go into it with your eyes wide open. Don't be romantic about what it is to you know it's the harsh reality is you're going to have to you know work so teaching is a really good um Mm. for me I found that was a really good way to sustain Mm. a career and the more the more artists and teaching the better yeah exactly and then I went into tertiary so I went out I was lucky because MIT opened up as a new art school and then I was doing some teaching at Elam but all of this all of this is closed down now these these are shrinking Mm. it's not a it's not a growth industry working in the arts um sadly Mm. yeah sorry it's good advice and you know but I am it's not as easy is it no but I am seeing a lot of invention you know a lot of artists are going back to ceramics there's a this great rebirth of ceramics um and there's some beautiful stuff being made and and you know in the old days you could make a living being a potter or a weaver you know Mm, yeah true so there are these sort of established crafts that you can go back to, and a lot of artists have a, a side gig, you know, printing T-shirts mm. or making T-shirts or, mm. yeah. Just got to think out at the square slightly. 
Yes. Sometimes. And it's good that crafting is being recognized as more, you know, a part of art and has more value. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, over lockdown, people discovered making again, you know. Mm, so good, wasn't it? That was the good side of lockdown, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there were a few good things, maybe. Um, so what's in the future for you? Uh, so at the moment, the, the show at Object Space is going to go down to Christchurch, to Coca. So that's going to be at the end of the year. So we're making that bigger. So it'll be the, the job there. The, um, Arts Makers, we want to get that running um, a bit more established. Um, so we're doing lots of meetings and conversations and catch up with that. Mm. Um, yeah, and just being in the studio, getting time to keep keep making things. Yeah. Oh, and I've got a shot two rooms in November, which is um, photographic, big, large photographic work. Yeah. Oh, that'd be interesting. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, well, you uh, you seem to have so many things that you're involved in, and your practice is not just um, assemblage and sculpture and installation. It's also poster art and video and photography, and you know, so you're a multi-talented woman. <laughs> well, I, I didn't want to fall into that, you know, one discipline thing. You know, mm. I, I think that's a construct as well. Mm. You know, I think as an artist, you are open to every avenue. You know, it shouldn't mm. be. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Why not? All right, so just to finish, Judy, we're going to have some fun questions for you. So mm-hmm. to start with, recycled plastic or recycled metal? Plastic. Fluoro, I think I know the answer to this, fluoro or primary colours? Fluoro. Eph- ephemeral or permanent? Uh, ooh, ephemeral. Mm, why is that? Um, I think we put too much emphasis on things that have to last forever and particularly in art, things can, it's an idea, you know, an art object is an idea. You look at it and then you take the idea away. So mm. you've already, you're taking it with you. Mm. It's the focus of an idea. Um, and we can document, you know, we can, an artwork, you know, it, it, it's a whole mix of things and, do we want to keep filling galleries full of stuff that's going to last forever? Because I don't think there's going to be a forever. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And that uh, that idea of sort of responding to something at that moment and then that moment moves on. You know, you can still capture, as you say, with photography and that kind of thing. Mm. And then, you know, perfect example, you make those beautiful big sculptures and there's nowhere to put them. Yeah. <laughs> And the end. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And outside or inside? Oh, I think inside. Suspended or stacked? Oh, stacked. Tiny pieces or one big piece? Mm, Tiny pieces. Mm, I thought you'd say that. (laughs) And New Zealand or elsewhere? I think New Zealand, definitely. Yeah, it's a good place to be, isn't it? At the moment. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. At any time, I'd say. Yes. Okay, Judy, well, that's it for today. Thank you so much. It's lovely to see you on screen. It's our first Zoom um, meeting. So hopefully once we get this on the podcast, all will be well. But it's lovely to see you in your in your room are you in your library or your Uh, office? Yeah, in your office. So many books behind you. Amazing. Yeah. So lovely to see you and thank you so much for coming on the show.
And uh, yeah, it's been great to see you. It was lovely to chat. Thank you very much. Thanks, Judy.